we had to beg Doug to do the uh, to do the hair flip. Um, it, it was a lot of begging, but it, I think it paid off in the end. So we're in a, a sermon series here uh, that Aaron has laid out for us, all about our Christian walk uh, and our life, our day to day life as we move through the season of Lent. Uh, last week, Aaron preached about uh, walking by faith, not just faith. Uh, in heaven and faith in the life to come, but as Second Corinthians 5 tells us, faith in what God can do here and now. Faith in the transformation that he can bring to our lives, to our community, um, that he gives us everything that we need to live righteous and holy lives. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm up for this week, and uh, I got a little bit derailed. Uh, on Saturday or Sunday, I came down with the flu. Um, and it was pretty It was pretty rough that, you know, it's, the, it's that kind of sickness where, like, I couldn't even get my computer open to, like, binge Netflix shows. I just kind of sat there and stared out in the distance for about two days. Um, and so I've just been, kind of been fighting through that. So if there's anything in here that doesn't make sense, doesn't really connect, uh, if at some point you just have to drag me away, uh, blame the flu, blame the drugs that I was on. But today we're talking about what it means to walk in the light. Uh, and, and the passage of scripture that, that, that we've laid out is from 1 John 1. We're talking about how do we walk in the light and not in darkness. We'll dive into the scripture in a second, but, but we, we, when, we, when we hear these terms, when we think about light and darkness, they're terms that, that make a lot of sense to us. They're terms that religions all around the world use to describe this clash between good and evil. They're words that we have all over our culture. And when we think about something like Star Wars, and we think about the light side of the force, the dark side of the force. And so, and so we're, we're constantly immersed in this kind of language. And, and part of the challenge that we can face is that when we're immersed in a language, when we're immersed in an analogy, we forget what it really means. And we forget particularly what it means for us in Scripture. And so what we want to do is we want to come directly to the text, read it, understand it in context, and then begin to apply it to our lives here and now today. So, if you have a Bible with you, if you have it on your phone, turn to 1 John 1. And if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> and so here's the Word of the Lord. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the Word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it. And we testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. And this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. And if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. You can go ahead and you can have a seat.
Well, you may not see it here reading these words, but as I, as I dove into reading the commentaries to understanding everything that was going on in this passage in the time that the Apostle John is writing, it, it hit me all of a sudden. This was right before the flu hit. And I was reading on Saturday that, that what we're reading here in 1 John 1 is basically the first century equivalent of a diss track. Now, some of you may not know what that is. Some of you do. I'm going to define it for you. I'm going to help you out. So, diss track... Is, is basically a genre that comes out of hip-hop. Uh, and, and in hip-hop, you've got a lot of rappers who are talking about their life, their experience. It's a little bit competitive. It's a little bit combative. And so sometimes you've got somebody else coming out saying that he's better than somebody else. And nobody can stand for that, so you've got to hit back. And you've got, you've, you've got to come at them, and hopefully all you're doing is coming at them through lyrics and not through actual violence, though we, we've seen that too. So, so here, here's an example. So in the late 90s, uh, I was coming up, I, I had just come out of Richmond Christian School, a nice sheltered environment. I was going into public school, like four foot nine, 60, 65 pounds, um, coming into middle school. And so my parents had really done a good job of keeping me sheltered. Um, but then they were letting me out into the wide world, uh, and hip hop was exploding was reaching new heights. We had just kind of passed East Coast, West Coast, Biggie versus Tupac, and now there were new artists who were jockeying to see who would be on top. Well, the next great rivalry that emerges there in the late 90s, and, and that kind of really became my education in music, was Nas versus Jay-Z. Now, some of you might know, you, some of you know Nas, some of you know Jay-Z, some of you only really know Jay-Z is Mr. Beyonce Knowles. That's okay. It's perfectly fine. He, he knows his place now. Well, back then, these guys, they're on top of the world, and they're going round for round against each other. Uh, and kind of the, the genesis of the rivalry, you know, Nas is growing up. He's growing up in the Queensbridge Projects. And Jay-Z, he's growing up just a few blocks away. They're both coming out of Brooklyn. They're both coming out of Queens. Um, and they're going up against each other. And it starts to take on a life of its own. And they're talking about each other, they're talking about their upbringings, they're talking about how fake each other is. And so, and so for a while, Jay-Z is on top. He's winning. He's blowing it away, his albums are doing better, they're more critically acclaimed. Uh, and then in 2001, Nas comes out with his big comeback album, Stillmatic. And so track one, he's just reestablishing his credentials, his life growing up in the biggest projects, the biggest public housing project in North America, his life on the streets all of his experiences, and then track two, he just goes right at Jay-Z. It's a song called Ether. We cannot put any of the lyrics, like not a single lyric can go up on the slides. We, we're in the world, we're not of it. You know, use discernment in what you listen to, uh, in the culture that you absorb. But, but he came out, and he just blew Jay-Z away. Just blew him away. This was his return Everybody was like, Nas is one. Jay-Z, he comes out, he comes out with a track, he comes out with a freestyle on the radio, and he just takes it way too far. Jay-Z's mom calls him up and says, that, you took it too far, you lost, you have to apologize to Nas on the radio. She literally called him up. Gloria Carter called him up, and he did that. He apologized to Jay-Z. Sorry, he apologized to Nas, he apologized to any of the women that he had offended. And so as I began to read this passage and understand that this was a first century version of a diss track. See... John isn't, he's not writing with this general kind of Christian life just in mind. He has a very particular person in mind. 
He has a particular false teacher in mind, a man named Serenthus. And Serenthus was just one of several false teachers who was propping, popping up in the churches that John had helped to plant and to lead and to shepherd. Uh, and he was a part of this early first century movement called Gnosticism. And so Serenthus, he, he, he was, he, John called him the enemy of the truth. In fact, there, there's this story that makes its way around the early church that John and some of his companions, they went into a bathhouse to relax. That, that was the way, like going to the pool to relax. And John goes in, he sits down, he looks across the building, and he sees Serenthus sitting there. He jumps up, he grabs his buddies, he runs out, and he says, guys, we have to get out of here. The enemy of truth is here, and God might bring down the building on his head. I don't want to be here when that happens. And he, he was, he was, they were really going at it. They were so opposed to each other. See, Serenthus, these other false teachers, they, they, were, they were the first teachers to teach this form of heresy called Gnosticism. And it took a wide variety of forms, but throughout the first two centuries of the church, this was the core battle over doctrine, over who Jesus was, over what it meant to live the Christian life, over who would be saved and who wouldn't, over what it meant that Jesus had come in the flesh, that he was the Son of God. This was bigger than East Coast versus West Coast or Jay-Z versus Nas, bigger than, than Tunnel Rats versus Cross Movement. Is anybody, anybody, anybody? We're going deep, deep Christian hip-hop. That's a deep cut. It's a deep cut. And so the letters of John... Starting right here, chapter 1. These are the first shots fired. And over the next two centuries, the early church fathers and mothers would constantly refer back to this passage. And say that this was the foundation of how we combat this false teaching. You see, in verses 1 through 4, if we go back to that slide to see, in verses 1 through 4, he is establishing his credentials, just like Nas or any good hip-hop artist would. But instead of talking about his exploits or his experiences on the streets, instead of talking about everything that he owns or everything that he's come up through, he's talking about his experiences with the living God, with Jesus Christ. He was there. He saw. He heard. He touched the holes in his hands. He was with him. This which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim. He's saying, it's undeniable. I was there. I saw it. I lived it. You can't, you can't question that. There were so many of us, hundreds, who saw Jesus come back from the dead. <clears throat> and then once he establishes his credentials, he starts to go right at the lies that Serenthus is spreading, that these false teachers are spreading. He starts right at verse 6. It's these statements. Every time that John says, if we claim, he's naming a false teaching that Serenthus or the other false teachers were proclaiming. And so, verse 6, slide, that if we proclaim, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet we walk in the darkness, we lie, and we do not live out the truth. You see, Serenthus and some of the other Gnostics, they said, what you did with your body, it had no impact on the state of your soul. They said that the body and the soul, they're fundamentally separate, they're different. The soul, that's what's going to be saved. And so, whatever you do with your body, it doesn't matter, it can't contaminate, it can't change where you're going. And so... They believed that they had received this secret, special revelation, this word of knowledge from God. That was going to save their souls, and now they could live however they wanted. But that's not all. That wasn't the only lie. They went on. See, some of the false teachers, they would say things like this. If we claim to be without sin, and John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
Others, they would go on, they would say, if we claim we have not sinned. And John says again, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him, we make God out to be a liar. See, these were the false teachings that were going around, and John was not afraid to call them out for what they were, that they were lies, that they made us liars, or that they turned God, and we make God out to be a liar if we follow these things. Now, maybe today, we're a little bit smarter, we're a little bit more educated. We, we, maybe some of us, we've, we've studied the scriptures, and we, we don't say exactly these things. But, but so often, a similar type of statement, or a similar type of lie, can make its way through our culture and through our churches. You see, one of the great uh, 20th century philosophers and theologians... Richard Niebuhr, he said this he took, in his book, The Kingdom of God in America. He talked about what was becoming popular in the church. That a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. A God without wrath brought men without sin. That, that church leaders were stripping away everything that was difficult. Everything that might talk about sin or evil or injustice. And teaching just a message of positivity and a power of positive thinking. He wrote that in 1937. 1937, and, 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 and it's continued on today. Maybe some of you have heard the words of somebody else in our culture who said that I have a great relationship with God. I like to be good. I don't like to have to ask for forgiveness. And I am good. Let the hair be a clue as to who this person is. But friends, we have to be honest with ourselves, don't we? This isn't just about somebody out there. This isn't just about church leaders out there. This isn't just about who happens to occupy the presidency today. Maybe we wouldn't say exactly these types of things. But if we are honest with ourselves, if we look in the mirror of our lives functionally, day in and day out, in so many areas of our lives, it may be how we live. You see, most of us, maybe we aren't walking in total darkness, but we want to turn the lights down low. You see, you know, we want to go to that dark, that candlelit restaurant where it's romantic. They bathe everybody in this kind of soft glow. And, you know, the imperfections in your face, they're kind of hidden. They're kind of hidden. There's this air of mystery. All the blemishes are hidden. Everybody looks just a little bit better. And so often that's the way we want to live our lives, make everything look a little bit better. Except the problem is, we aren't living in a dark, romantic, candlelit restaurant where the light isn't shining, it is hiding the stains in the carpet. It's hiding the health code violations in the kitchen. And maybe we, we, maybe we want to do something, we take something that's a sin issue, and we, we try to call it something else. We want to deceive ourselves and we want to deceive other people. We say things like, like, I don't have an anger problem. I'm just a really intense person. Or I'm not a mean-spirited and critical person. I just have really high standards. So, friends, I'm, I'm putting myself on blast here. Or maybe we say, I don't have a problem with materialism or consumerism. I just want things to be, to be well-made and well-crafted. Or I'm not, I'm not a workaholic. I just care about the mission. I just care about providing for my family. Or maybe, or maybe on the flip side of that, I'm not lazy. I'm just more balanced than everybody else. All these workaholics around me. Or, or, or maybe we just procrastinate. We minimize. We ignore. We know it's a problem. 
but we don't want to confront the issue. We know it's a problem. I'll confront that next month. I'll make a New Year's resolution in 2019 to deal with that. I'll deal with that next Lent. For me, one of the things that's been happening slowly over the last number of months, and, and, and my wife has been a part of this, others of you have been a part of this in revealing this to me, um, is just how much time I spend with my phone or in front of a screen or with technology. Literally, if there's ever a question, and everybody's like, I wonder what, I'm, I'm, I'm like the first one to grab my phone and look it up and Google it. Or I'm the first one to be on Twitter. As soon as the conversation starts to like slide down, and it's not quite up here, I'm just like on Twitter, just looking through what's going on in the world today. You know, a, few, uh, a few months ago, a book came out called The TechWise Family. Uh, and I got a copy of it. I didn't read it. Uh, my wife read it. Other people have read it. It's still sitting on uh, my nightstand. I haven't, I haven't looked at it. I haven't read it. I haven't driven into it because I know what it's going to bring forth in me. I know that it's going to challenge my habits around technology. It's going to challenge my habits around social media. It's going to challenge my habits around trying to distract myself so that I don't have to confront what's actually going on inside of me. I don't, I don't, I don't want to deal with it. I'm, I'm procrastinating. I'm minimizing. I'm ignoring. A few weeks ago, I downloaded this app called Moment. And what it does is it tracks the usage of your phone. And I was like, oh, okay, this will be interesting. And then I realized I was on my phone four, five, six hours a day. I was like, I, uh, I didn't want to know that about myself. So maybe we're procrastinating. Or maybe we're calling sin something else. Or maybe, maybe we're picking and choosing the truths of Scripture to live by. We like what it has to say about justice and mercy. But we don't like what it has to say about sex or our bodies. We like what it has to say about raising children. But we don't like what it has to say about how we're supposed to steward our wealth or our resources. Or maybe... maybe Maybe, maybe we're past that, but maybe we've begun to twist the words of Scripture or the clear command that we know, we heard God place in our lives. And we begin to repeat the very first lie that we find in Scripture that the serpent tells Adam and Eve. Did God really say? And did God really say whatever you do unto the least of these you do unto me? when we're driving down the street and we're passing by people who are in need, maybe not even of a handout, but just somebody to honor their dignity and see them as a person? Or did God really call us, those of us who moved to this community, did God really call us to a radical lifestyle of hospitality and generosity and relationship and solidarity with our neighbors that our city has left behind? A lifestyle that is actually going to demand real sacrifice that goes against everything that our culture tells us to do. I don't know about you, but I want to have it both ways. I want to have solidarity and I want to have hospitality and generosity, but I don't want to actually have it really cost me anything. I want it on my own schedule, on my own terms. And I don't want to have to make choices. I don't want to have to choose my comfort versus somebody else's good because every single time I'm going to end up choosing my own comfort. And so we do all of these things to dim the light, to bring it down, to put a cover over it, to move from having the bright fluorescent light that lights up everything and trying to put a shade over the little lampstand and put it right down there on the floor. And we try to do these things to create spaces of darkness in our lives that we don't have to confront. And then 
When we're living in that restaurant where we've brought the lights down, where the lights aren't even on in the kitchen, we begin to ask ourselves, why is the food rotten? Why isn't it cooked right? Why is the fruit of my life not what I want it to be? Why are my relationships filled with bitterness, with unforgiveness or brokenness? Why, why am I drawn to addiction? Why is my life filled with fear or anxiety or apathy? Why am I tied to having my value defined by somebody or something else? And why am I trapped in this American dream, this treadmill that's really an American nightmare? Consumerism and greed or narcissism and self-centeredness of being complicit in the very injustices we said we came here to address. And so this is why John anchors the entire passage. When we go and we look at the middle of the passage, and he says, he anchors the entire chapter, that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And that's why he's telling us to walk in the light as he is in the light. Because one of the things that means is that we walk in the truth. We let the truth light up every single area of our life. And we bring our sin out from under the darkness. And we stop living these lives of self-deception. We stop hiding from ourselves. We stop hiding from other people. (coughs) We stop hiding from God. And we stop living in this restaurant that we feel like is romantic and mysterious, but it's really full of a mess and rotting food. And we begin to bring it out into the light to live in the garden that God has called us to, that's flourishing and nourished and is full of light and growth and health. So how do we begin to live this way? What does this passage tell us? Well, John in this passage, he gives us two very specific practices. We find them embedded in there. In fact, they're the same practices that we started talking about in January as we learned to hear and obey God's voice. And when we look at at the teaching that Doug and, and the rest of the staff has brought us, We saw that in order to discern what God is calling us to in our lives, we have to turn to the Bible, and we have to turn to people. And that's exactly what we find in this passage. We find that John is calling us to live our lives in light of Scripture, and he's calling us to live our lives in the light of fellowship with other believers. Let's go back to verse 5. You see, when when John says this in verse 5, when he says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, he is telling his audience, remember what I've already written. See, he's at this point, he's already written the gospel of John. He's already written about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And he's calling them back to the scriptures that he's already proclaimed. The gospel that he wrote. And here it is in, in John chapter 1. Where it says that in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And it goes on in verse 4. In him was life. And the life was the light of all men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. He is calling the people of God back to the scriptures. To remember who God is. Who Jesus is. And the life that he has called us to. He's calling us to the scripture because as David said in the Psalms, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path as we navigate our lives and our world and the challenges of our neighborhood. Your word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. As he says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts 
and the attitudes of the heart. And I know I'm, I'm throwing a lot of scripture here at you. I'm just doing what Pastor Don has taught us to do, even though he is not here, that we are called to do the Bible, to live out its words. Yes, Donald Lucius Coleman. Even though he's not with us, he is with us. I'm called to do the Bible and to live out what it says. So are, are you struggling with something in your life? Do you have a, a Bible that has a concordance or an index in the back? Look up the issue that you're struggling with. It. Go on the internet. So search, what does the Bible have to say about X, Y, or Z? Now, don't, just, don't just follow the first thing that it clicks on. That's how you end up in a cult. But, but go through and do your research. It's out there, all of the world's knowledge. And all the commentaries and the, what the scholars have said about how to live our lives according to the Bible, it's available to us. Go to the elders with what you're learning and reading. Go to elders and the staff and ask, what does the scripture have to say about this? And how can I bring the scripture to bear on the challenges of my life? And then we have to live our lives as John says, in the light of fellowship with other believers. We have to stop hiding from each other. And so this is why John says in the passage, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. They are tied together. It can never be just me and Jesus. They are tied together to have fellowship with one another because, because the Lord knows that we need each other. We need each other to, to point out our blind spots. To hold each other accountable. To lovingly correct us. And Hebrews chapter 10 verses 24 and 25 tells us that let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And this is why, this is why in this church we've put such an emphasis on spiritual family. Whether that's in a house church or through another means. That to be on mission, following Jesus in what he's called us to together, inevitably means holding each other accountable, correcting one another, lifting each other up when we fall. That's the power of spiritual family. That's the power of being a part of a missional community or a house church. That's why our church says that there's no plan B. Discipleship is God's plan A. For, uh, for us to have mentors and disciples who are pouring into our lives and pointing us out Pointing out to us the ways in which we might be living in darkness and not in the light. Friends, I need you to hold me accountable. Right? By this weekend, if you see me this weekend, that I've started to dive into this book, The TechWise Family, and that I'm putting it into practice in my life to tame my addiction to, to technology and to information and to looking away from myself and looking out into the world. And so as we close, as the band comes back up, and as we begin to enter our time of response, and there will be some elders and staff, members of the prayer team, around uh, as we normally have in our time of response to pray for you. But, but, but as we enter into this time, can we consider and can we search of ourselves? Can we ask God to pour light on the dark places in our lives? As it says in the 12 steps of Al Alcoholics Anonymous, are we prepared to make a searching and a fearless moral inventory of ourselves? Searching and fearless. You see, because the, the, the truth that we are able to rely on, to be entering into this inventory without fear, is because we know that at the end of the day, God has decreed life 
and not death over us. God has made a promise, as we sang, to transform us from the inside out. And this is what John says, verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And yes, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. It doesn't just bring our sin out into the light. It actually purifies it. It destroys it. It transforms us. In verse 9, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Going on into chapter 2, John says, if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice of our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the promise and the good news of living in the light. No more shame, no more hiding, no more deceiving ourselves. But living with the truth and knowing that the truth will not crush us because he was crushed on our behalf. Knowing that the truth will not crush us because he has borne the penalty of our sin. And now he calls us into life, into love, into flourishing in him and not in our sin. So, Father, will you be with us? Will you be with me? Will your Holy Spirit come now to convince and to convict and to convert, to comfort us in the depth of our sin? We know the depths of your grace and the depths of your love. And we can know the power of your transformation. The light can bring us from death to life and from brokenness to wholeness. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.